so this passage that um, we just read, it starts in the middle of Mark 3 and kind of takes us through to the end of Mark 3. And there's, if you were listening, you would hear that there was a lot that is happening in this passage. Um, and I think it's actually kind of important that we understand what happens just before the part of Mark 3 that we just read, because there's a lot that happens there too. And it kind of makes the things going on in what we just read make a little bit more sense when we consider that. So the part of Mark 3 that we just read, it starts with Jesus going into a house and there's a crowd that gathers in the house as well. Um, the crowd is so large that there's not room for anybody to do anything. There's not even room for anybody to eat. Jesus' family comes to try and take um, control of him because they think that he's out of his mind. And then the legal experts come down from Jerusalem and they start making all these accusations. And without the context of what happens at the beginning of Mark 3, this seems kind of weird. Because why is it that Jesus is being accused of being out of his mind? Why is he being accused of literally being possessed just because he goes into a house and a bunch of people follow him into it? So the gospel of Mark tends to be short and sweet and to the point. Um, Mark doesn't really like to add a lot of fluff to different things. He kind of likes to get straight to the point. And so a lot tends to happen in a very short amount of time. And chapter three is no exception to that rule. So right before the passage that we just read, a lot is happening. Jesus heals a lot of people. One of the people that he heals is a man that has a withered hand. He happens to heal this man on the Sabbath, which is bad because you're not supposed to do things on the Sabbath. So the religious experts and the legal experts already don't like that because who cares if Jesus is healing people if he's breaking the law? And then along with healing people, Jesus has been casting out demons from people. And the religious leaders and the legal experts don't really like that either because who does Jesus think he is? By what authority is he doing these things? How dare he set people free from demons? And then in addition to these things, which I just think this part is kind of funny because it doesn't really fit with anything else. It's just another thing that happens. Mark 3 is also where Jesus appoints 12 apostles. So a lot has happened right before this passage, a lot is happening right in this passage, and based on the things that Jesus has been doing, some people love Jesus and some people hate him. And these different opinions of Jesus come from all kinds of different people. Jesus' own family clearly misunderstands what he is doing, and the legal experts come to the conclusion that Jesus can only be doing these things if he is possessed. These accusations are wild. People are saying that Jesus, the one who has been healing people and setting people free and has crowds following him wherever he goes, is out of his mind. And this, this is the kind of thing that kind of happens once you begin to not really like someone. The legal experts are kind of in what's known as the negative perspective, which is this concept that once you start to not like somebody, everything that they do just upsets you. Everything that they do is the wrong thing to do. Because the thing is, the legal experts never deny that Jesus is doing these things. They don't deny that he's casting out demons. They don't deny that he is healing people. The problem isn't that they're in denial. The problem is that they don't like that Jesus is doing these things. And it's strange because you would think that the legal experts or the religious experts, the guardians of tradition, the guardians of truth, the ones who really know about God would be thrilled that Jesus is doing these things. But instead of celebrating the healing and instead of celebrating the freedom and instead of celebrating the restoration that Jesus has been bringing with him, the very people that we would think would celebrate these things are the ones who literally demonize Jesus. 
They're making wild accusations about him. They're saying that Jesus is out of his mind. So I want to take a closer look at these accusations that are coming against Jesus, and especially at the people who are making these accusations. So first, Jesus' own family accuses him of being out of his mind. Um, Another way to think of this is that they're accusing him of being eccentric, unconventional, odd, strange, weird. And in this context, Jesus' family actually would have had ample reason to be saying that Jesus was eccentric because it's clear that Jesus' focus was on something other than what was normally socially acceptable. This context is grounded in an honor and shame system. It, It focuses on the family. One's decisions need to reflect well not only on yourself, but also on your family, because if they don't reflect well on your family, you bring shame on your family, and that's a bad thing. So for Jesus to have large crowds gathering around him, for him to have large crowds following him wherever it is that he goes, and for him to be drawing so much attention to himself, and especially the negative attention that he has been drawing to himself from important people like legal experts and like religious leaders, These things reflect poorly on Jesus and therefore reflect poorly on his family. And so by the standards of this context, Jesus was out of his mind because for Jesus, there was actually something that was more important than his family's reputation. And that was unheard of. For Jesus, the work of God was more important than even his familial ties. By these standards, it makes a lot of sense that Jesus' own family, the ones who know him the best, would really have not understood what was happening. And so that they would make the accusation that he's out of his mind. It would make sense that they would see things that way. And then the legal experts take the accusations even further by saying that Jesus is possessed, that he throws out demons with the authority of the ruler of demons. The ones who are meant to be the guardians of tradition and truth are completely wrong about Jesus. The ones who have devoted their lives to studying the character and nature and law of God are the ones who do not see God at work right in front of their eyes. And I think it's easy for us to dismiss Jesus' accusers. I think that it's easy for us to want to demonize them the same way that these people are demonizing Jesus. But I don't think that that's fair for us to do. Because Jesus' family and the legal experts, the people who are accusing Jesus, are operating under the system that shaped them. They're trying to protect what they believe to be were the most important things. And we do this too. Accusations that are against the people who are doing God's work because they don't really work with our systems have long run in the history of the church. They're still present today. That's why we still see, especially on social media today, why we still see so many times when people are saying, well, this person's a heretic, or this person is tolerant of this sin, or this person hangs out with that sinner. When it comes to protecting our systems, when it comes to protecting our structures that have shaped us, when it comes to protecting the norm, it's easy to dismiss those things that do not align with that system. But I think that we can avoid demonizing the people who accuse Jesus while also acknowledging that these accusations are out of line. Because here's the thing, Jesus is not out of his mind. In fact, he is the only person in this scene who gets it right. Jesus' family and the legal experts are trying to protect what they see as the most important things, but in doing so, they're ignoring what's actually important. 
Jesus' accusers are so focused on the social norms and the systems that are in place that they fail to see what really matters here. They fail to see that Jesus is actually healing people and setting people free. Jesus' accusers are in the negative perspective. And so even though Jesus is doing very good things, they see him as doing the wrong thing. But Jesus is actually the only one here who gets it right. And it's good news to know that Jesus, the one who gets it right, the one who heals us and sets us free, is the one who calls us siblings. In Christ, our reality becomes that the water of our baptism is actually thicker than our familial blood. Our ties to Christ and our ties to one another that are forged in our baptism are stronger than our ties to our genetics. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to go out and reject our families, but it does mean that the mission of God is more important even than our family reputations, even than our family ties. And because Jesus sees the will of God as more important than the systems that shape our world, in Christ we are restored. And the restored people of God are now able to do the will of God because we are cleansed and healed and called and entrusted with the mission and the message of Christ. And more importantly, as the restored people of God, we are able to do the will of God because we are with Christ. What matters in this passage is not that there are people who think Jesus is out of his mind. What matters is that Jesus is gathering around himself a diverse group of people. Jesus gathers around himself the apostles, the crowds, the cleansed, the healed, the forgiven, and even the formerly demonized. And Jesus transforms them into his holy community. And Christ continues to gather us, we who are cleansed and healed, forgiven, and even we who are formerly demonized, even we who are currently demonized. And Christ continues to transform us into a holy community that is capable of doing God's will. This passage ends with Jesus saying that whoever does God's will is Jesus' sibling or family, or mother. And indeed, we are the siblings of Christ when we go and we do God's will. Even when, like Jesus, it means that we risk being misunderstood. It means that we risk having accusations that are outrageous and wild and don't make any sense come against us. And we do the will of God whenever we work toward healing and restoration and justice. We do the will of God whenever we care for creation, whenever we seek to restore our lost or broken relationships, whenever we stand up for the marginalized, when we see the fallen and the broken systems and we say this is not okay, whenever we forgive one another or pass the peace of Christ to one another, whenever we break down barriers and we share a meal together. And doing the will of God might mean that we're accused of being out of our minds or even worse. But nevertheless, the one who calls us siblings and family beckons us to come forth and participate in God's work and will. 
Let's pray. God of love, you have already healed us and restored us and set us free. You have said that when we do your will, we are your siblings. And so may we go and do your will. May we love as you have loved and serve as you have served. May we resist the urge to make outrageous accusations whenever we see someone going against the systems that have enslaved us for so long. May we instead greet those who go against these systems with curiosity. May we learn to be okay with the fact that doing your will likely means going against the status quo. And may we find joy when we go against the norm. Thank you for calling us and healing us and entrusting us with your mission. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen.